I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Pernico, a host of this podcast. And this week, I'm just the I'm just the host of the podcast this week. That's all I'm saying. That's good. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm the co-host of the podcast this week. I should have said co-host. I said host like I'm the only person, and that's wrong. No, I think this time around, you're the host, and I am the co-host. And oh, I, I'm hosting. It, it couldn't be better. That's right. Okay. It's like I'm hosting Saturday Night Live. This is my opening monologue, and uh, the whole bit is here that I didn't was that I didn't know I was the host. So that's cool. Yeah, that's right. It's a real Alec Baldwin kind of night. <laughs> and Pete Davidson's in the crowd, and he is gonna laugh no matter what happens. Pete's wild for this Marxism stuff. <laughs> he loves it. Keenan, he's, he's got into that it Staten too. Island, Staten Island working class sensibility. <laughs> Man. I hope Saturday Night Live never comes back on. <laughs> um, I hope it comes back on, but only with Pete Davidson and Keenan Thompson. Yeah, that's true. Keenan Thompson is my fave. I've loved him since all that. Yep. I'll never stop, really. We are not talking about SNL. We're not talking about Keenan, uh, unfortunately. Instead, we're talking about an essay and an idea. I'll start with the idea. That sounds more exciting. We're talking about the idea of solidarity, the very possibility of such a thing. But to do that, we're talking about an essay by David Reutiger, who's a really great uh, labor historian and Marxist um, theorist and anti-racist historian who has a collection of essays called Class, Race, and Marxism. And one of the essays in it is called Making Solidarity Uneasy, Cautions on a Keyword from Black Lives Matter to the Past. Um, it's a really interesting article because it does exactly what it says. It makes solidarity uneasy. Uh, but as we'll see, not for that reason, um, unachievable or unimportant. So lots of great nuances in this particular essay. Yeah. Well, since I'm the host, uh, let me just introduce it like this. <laughs> you might be wondering, well, OK, solidarity. Why would you want to make it uneasy at all? Well, let me tell you a little bit why. <laughs> this past week on July 20th, there was a big strike across the United States. Um, and it was in some other countries, too. Imagine that. Uh, it was <laughs> called the Strike for Black Lives. Uh, the strike was organized mostly by SEIU, but there's a coalition of other unions and other activist groups that were you know, working on it to make sure it all happened. Um, and after all was said and done, um, workers went on strike in something like 160 cities. It was massive as far as a big strike goes. Um, the goal of the strike was to draw attention to the pressing labor issues of the day, which uh, we're all very familiar with at this point, I guess, uh, like minimum wage, paid sick leave, proper protective equipment for workers, and so on. Um, but the strike also paid some special attention to the ways that race and class go hand in hand. How like, you know, you can't talk about economic inequality if you don't talk about racial inequality too that's like good i don't know um but for all of us who weren't on strike <laughs> it's like a, a moment and a time to stand in solidarity with these workers and solidarity is one of those like big ideas on the left like dean was saying a minute ago that we use quite a bit but like what does solidarity actually mean how does it work how do we do a solidarity <laughs> In general, <laughs> you know, is it uh, is it posting about it? Is it using the right hashtag? Does it mean marching with people? Does it mean like holding common sentiments together? Does it mean just wanting the same things? Does it just mean empathy? Um, what 
could any of these things mean, really? <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the idea of solidarity and some of its complicated histories. And I think like I think by kind of understanding the histories and kind of understanding like the criticisms um, about certain types of solidarity and certain types of historical moments, we can kind of come to understand like what's going on a little bit better in our current situations and like how we can comport ourselves better to being um, better practitioners of solidarity. <laughs> As, you know, mm -hmm. people who are on the left or people who are Christians, um, you know, it's really important to understand how to, like, come alongside people. And I think that we can learn a lot by understanding how people have done it wrongly. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think it's also great to reflect on something like solidarity because it's one of those words that, like, everybody loves. And rightly so. Right. We all love it. Solidarity. You should love it. You should want it. Um, you should try to achieve it. All that kind of stuff. Uh, you want to be in solidarity with other people. Um, it's a it's a good word, uh, but it's also a word that can hide a lot of differences that are significant differences. It can sort of obscure them or paper over them or pretend that they don't matter when, in fact, perhaps not only do they matter, but they prevent you from having real solidarity. And I think this is kind of a theme that comes up on this show a lot with respect to Christianity and it's interesting to see a similar problem in the labor movement in particular. Um, that problem is the problem of something like universality or uh, trying to achieve a unity based on, in this case, a common struggle in Christianity, something like a, you know, a, a particular faith tradition or something like that. Um, but I think there's a similar way that these kind of aspirations that might seem good and maybe in, in many cases, of course, are good, uh, nevertheless can end up uh, creating their own kinds of uh, particularisms that are actually violent, but they sort of hide behind um, ideas of the universal. If you're interested in where we talk about that on the show, we talk about it with Amaria Armstrong a few times. Marika Rose also brings our attention to it and some other people as well. Um, but we've never really done it in the labor movement, I don't think. So I think this will be a good way to maybe draw some connections. So let me start out with a quote from Reutiger, uh, kind of putting this all on the table. He says, Solidarity's magnificent association with the good fights is well established in its recent past. To encourage an unease with the magic seemingly worked by such a word is therefore perilous. It risks being misheard as defeatism and resignation in the face of division, rather than as an appeal for sober reflection on the difference the differences make, even in how unity is apprehended. Nevertheless, the magnificence of solidarity can hardly be realized if it is tethered to impossible expectations, leaving us coming up forever short of an unexamined ideal. Uh, what I love about this approach is that Rudiger isn't saying that you shouldn't have solidarity or shouldn't try to get it, uh, but you shouldn't pretend that getting solidarity is something very easy to do. And if you do that, if you make that mistake, you'll never even get there. You'll never get to the, the good stuff of solidarity. So just a, a great reminder that we should be careful as on the left. It's a good reminder. You got to you got to be reminded of this thing, particularly. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I think that's a good way to start us out. But um, the next thing that Rodiger does is start bringing up ways that, um, you know, solidarity happens or how it doesn't happen, how like, you know, sometimes the connections are sort of unusual, but like uh, when they're made, they're very meaningful. Um, so here's here's another quote, and we'll talk about maybe a specific example of uh, problem of solidarity in a minute. But OK, here's another quote from Rodiger. Looking as well at the forms of solidarity that emerged after the killing of Mike Brown underscores another dimension of the difficulties involved in arriving at a sober assessment of the phenomenon of solidarity. Uh, we confront, that is, not only the question of our own desire, but also perhaps an erratic pattern of ways in which solidarity actually comes and fails to come into the world. In at least two particular areas, uh, Black Palestinian solidarity and Black queer solidarity, the dramatic successes after Ferguson seemed almost simple in their triumphs, a matter of showing up and reaching out and waiting, and yet other efforts at solidarity, such as trade union solidarity with the victims of white supremacist police violence, solidarity proceeds excruciatingly slowly and not always forward. I think this is interesting because... Um, I don't know the the places that you might expect solidarity to happen, like um, like I don't know a trade union, uh, or a, la a labor union. It seems like that would be like a pretty easy spot for it, these kind of things to form, right? Like 
the rank and file of of um of some like low wage but unionized jobs like uh food service or um you know like grocery store workers or whatever um are oftentimes people of color and you think that those lines of solidarity would be like, really quick to form because like that's the rank and file for all but there are ways that just like doesn't happen and we're seeing that kind of replay out but um yeah i think it's really interesting some sometimes solidarity happens just in places you wouldn't like directly expect right like the connection between ferguson and palestine palestine is not uh you know it's a line that you have to take some time to draw but it's it's there in an interesting way yeah and not only is it there in an interesting way but as Reidiger says it it was there in almost a simple way right just showing up reaching out and waiting um Reidiger goes into greater detail about how those forms of solidarity actually emerge so it's not like he's just like look these ones are easy and the institutional ones are hard um you know there there are particular contours to them but i think it's really useful that he kind of uh makes the suggestion that um if we're going to talk about solidarity we have to understand how it gets used and how it also gets sort of abused um so for instance like he notes uh in particular the um the ways that like institutional labor uh can't seem to uh mobilize in the right way or immediately in response to racialized violence or the killing of black people in the streets by police um because they also feel some kind of bizarre solidarity with police unions because they're part of the you know the AFL or something AFL-CIO uh, and I think it's it's just good to recognize that uh, having conversations about solidarity might also might not only unify you in some ways, but it might pit you against certain segments of the left in other ways. And that's like a really, really tough thing to sort out, but very important rather than pretending that it's an easy thing to do. Right. Well, the here, here's an example of the complication. So this is written, um, you know, not right now <laughs> in the past. And uh, the example of, of Mike Brown kind of shows you the date that we're working with here. But um, uh, this is what Rodiger says uh, about labor and cops and kind of how he outlines the the narrative around the institutionalized like labor unions and, and how this works out uh, like it, during the, fir the first protest in Ferguson, not the most recent ones. Um, OK, so Rodiger says the heralded statement on Ferguson by the AFL-CAO head Richard Trumka turned out to offer a re-acknowledgement of the position that police unions are labor unions just like any other. As Trumka put it, this is a quote from Richard Trumka, the, the president of the AFL-CIO, in case you didn't know. Um, the AFL-CIO, by the way, is a big, like, um, it's like the, the managing head of, like, labor unions that kind of knits all these different labor unions together. It, it's a thing. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> this is what Richard Trumka says. Uh, Leslie McSpadden, Michael Brown's mother, who works at a grocery store, is our sister, an AFL-CIO union member. And Darren Wilson, the officer who killed Mike Brown, is a union member's son, uh, is a union member too. And he is our brother. Our brother killed our sister's son, and we do not have to wait for the judgment of prosecutors or courts to tell us how terrible this is. That's the quote <laughs> from Richard Trumka. It's very confusing. <laughs> Um, and then Rodiger goes on to say, uh, mobilization of membership by the AFL-CIO for demonstrations and solidarity with Mike Brown was unsurprisingly meager. <laughs> so I guess like what's important to draw out here is that, uh, okay, Richard Trumka, this guy who's, you know, the president of all of these labor unions, you know, the, the AFL-CIO. And um, he's, you know, on the one hand, we have this woman who is our, our union sister. And on the other hand, we have this guy who's our union brother. And, like, you know, this, like, whole family analogy is so, like, absolutely bizarre. <laughs> but, like, um, you know, be because of because Trumka, like, frames it in this way, that these are both just workers who these things have happened to, like, um, all we can do is say how terrible it is. And that, like, prohibits him from, you know, doing the work of solidarity. And in, in response, you know, the um, AFL-CIO demonstrations, uh, you know, weren't exactly great for for Mike Brown. And we, we see the same exact thing playing out right now. The, like the the moment um, I, I don't know. I don't know how <laughs> involved everyone is in the discourse of labor on Twitter or uh, <laughs> also on social media. But these conversations um, have kind of reemerged about um, police unions, in case you don't know. Um, there's a really good article that uh, Kim Kelly. I don't know if you know her. She's a good labor reporter. Mm hmm. But she has written a lot about uh, police unions lately. Um, just a ton. She's kind of always on the beat. And I appreciate that about her. Um, she uh, she wrote a piece a while back uh, in Teen Vogue, which is cool. Um, and it was called Police Unions, What to Know and Why They Don't Belong in the Labor Movement. 
And uh, she kind of, the, the whole thing is like, a, is a really good sort of explainer, if you don't know. So go read Teen Vogue. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Teen Vogue is where all the good radical stuff is these days. So uh, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> I don't know how to process that information in my brain, but okay. It's pretty cool. Um, anyway, so this is what Kim Kelly writes, just kind of like a really quick um, summarization of like what's going on right now. In a statement uh, that also called for the resignation of Minneapolis Police Union President Bob Kroll, the AFL-CIO, this is the the right now, Richard Trump is still the president, but whatever. Uh, the AFL-CIO instead called for the reform of police officer, uh, of police unions and policing, insisting that the answer was to engage police unions rather than to isolate them. Um, and then she says, meanwhile, uh, smaller locals and member unions have been making their own stances clear and keeping up the pressure. Rank and file members of various unions are brainstorming ways to push their leadership into action. So I guess like the, the whole reason I want to draw this out, though, is that it it demonstrates the way that sometimes solidarity is like slow, but also confused mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that uh, these places where you think solidarity should be like um, labor. I mean, you know, the like the example we started the show off with the strike for black lives. Right. It's about calling out not just uh economic inequality but also racial inequality like that's an expression of solidarity but in the larger like um the larger structure of the of the labor movement in the united states this has been like painfully slow very confusing and also contradictory right where the afl cao at the very top those folks will say one thing that well you know they're just workers like anybody else um whatever all the like at the local levels smaller unions local unions etc have been like um, have been way more vocal about trying to get the leadership of the national uh, the national unions to like oust police uh, from, you know, stop representing them, basically. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a good example of the ways that (laughs) the labor union works against itself, the way that solidarity can work against itself, the way that these, um, you know, these topics become very complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's great to point that out, right? It's just, put simply, it's the the weaponization of solidarity by one kind of institutional arm of the labor movement uh, against the weaponization of solidarity by certain rank-and-file people in the labor movement, Um, which is all to say that you don't want to collapse those kind of distinctions in some kind of imaginary, uh, peaceful, higher solidarity where everybody just gets along, right? Like, where you have all, all the union, the big union family comes together for the big family reunion and uh, everybody feels good about it. Like they're all, all part of the, the big old labor, labor family. Um, I think it's important to sort of break that kinship analogy and understand that um, solidarity is something that you, you earn and sort of strive to achieve and re-earn over time. You can't really like take it for granted just because you're in a movement ostensibly built on solidarity. That's right. You know, like um, in, in the most recent sort of wave of, of protests around George Floyd and, and his murder, um, like uh, in Washington, D.C., there was this moment where people were kind of upset that the AFL-CIO building in Washington, D.C. was like, uh, you know, it got tagged. They People spray painted all cops or bastards on it and, you know, and they broke like windows or whatever. And um, in response, the labor, like the AFL-CIO folks were like, OK, um, like what if we said black lives matter on the building so they painted a big black lives matter mural and like you know that's that's in a way of that that's a way of saying solidarity with these protests right saying black lives matter is a way of saying solidarity right now and um it didn't really help them (laughs) it didn't really help them it (laughs) it didn't ring true right like just like you're saying that solidarity like wasn't earned it was just Mm -hmm. like um just saying it doesn't mean it's true uh showing up for somebody is some sometimes it's, it's hard to tell exactly like what showing up for somebody might look like right like it can look like a lot of different things like maybe sometimes saying it is like enough and sometimes you have to do more um or show up in different ways and uh i think what's clear is that like boarding up your windows and, and putting a, a black lives matter mural on your building is not the same as showing up for people <laughs> in that moment so um i mean you know aflcio is trying to i like, think like do what it can in this moment but i think it's also severely confused in, in the way it's responding um, yeah so yeah all that to say that like solidarity is uh complicated and it, sometimes just saying it isn't enough yeah that's right um i think this is a great way to also talk about how christians get um stuck on these sorts of problems i mean we talked just i don't know maybe it was like a month ago or a couple months ago now about labor and capital and all that kind of stuff and how Christians just have sometimes a hard time understanding what the 
what the productive forces are in a society or like why you would care about them. Um, and we, we sometimes as Christians eclipse those questions with uh, appeals to things like um, loving our neighbor or acts of mercy or something. And we sort of ignore these material issues underneath. Um, I think solidarity is actually a great example of how that happens a lot um, yeah. because Christians will use that word, right? Um, and one thing that's really fascinating about this essay is Reutiger makes this argument that in some ways Christians didn't invent the word, but they like set a tone for it, um, which doesn't go away, I don't think. Uh, so Reutiger says the origin of the term solidarity and even its usage into the 19th century are surprisingly entwined with impulses that, if not conservative, are seemingly at odds with the, le with the left uses of the word so common today. Well into the 19th century, the Catholic Church, not radicals, deployed solidarity most effectively, being better poised to survive repression and more able to combine a critique of bourgeois individualism with a hankering for older pre-industrial regimes of rule, including at times even royalism. Uh, Reutiger doesn't mention this, but like, this is basically the, I think, uh, driving sentiment behind like Rerum Novarum, right? Some of the, the labor encyclicals, papal encyclicals. Um, and it's also a certain driving sentiment that's still with us today, right? Um, I think about like, I don't know, if, Matt, if you've heard of the American Solidarity Party, does that mean anything to you? No. <laughs> uh, that's fine. Um, I won't go into it. I should have, I should have, uh, when we were thinking about this episode, I should have done more, more research on it and brought it to you <laughs> earlier, but, uh, it just occurred to me right now in this conversation. Um, it's a, it's a political party that is based on in sort of like Catholic social teaching in the United States. And it comes out of certain distributist ideas. You know, it's not totally homogenous, but it's a kind of like Catholic left of center sort of mm. movement. Um, and the fact that it's called the American Solidarity Party, I think is just such a great illustration of this because they'll often position themselves against Marxism or communism, right? They, they go out of their way to say, that's not what we're about. What we're really about is building solidarity in this kind of Christian way. Um, and, you know, it's not like they're like totally reducible to Christianity, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But in my experience, the only people I ever see talk about it are Christians, um, which is telling in itself. And uh, in any case, all that to say, uh, it's an interesting example of how the Christian use of the term solidarity has continued till today in a way that is not always bad, right? Like, like when Dorothy A talks about being in solidarity with the working class, she's not doing that as a Marxist. And like, sometimes I wish that she did. But obviously what she achieves with it is still very impressive and good. Um, but nevertheless, solidarity is a term that people can hide behind in order to um, reproduce anti-communist or anti-proletarian sentiments, not to mention all kinds of ways that people uh, use solidarity to say that they're for something like, let's say, an anti-racist movement in the streets. But in fact, they, you know, don't put up in the way that they should. Um, so all that to say, Christians have, I think, particular reasons to um, use this word and Christian leftists have particular reasons to be like suspicious of it in the ways that Reidegger helps us understand. So solidarity has some, uh, some roots in Christianity and Catholicism. And I think that's always a really interesting connection for our show. Uh, but I think as the word stands, most of us know it uh, when it, you know, in regards to labor and uh, uh, Reidegger goes on to say a little bit more about how that all happened. Um, so he says, in the second half of the 19th century, the connection between solidarity and labor became firm for the first time at the level of both practice and theory. Ironically, Marxist practice, far more than Karl Marx's theoretical writings, spread the use of solidarity, often in its English rather than its French form, which meant across national boundaries. Um, so uh, there, there's the turn there, not necessarily in Marx himself, but in, in Marx's praxis. Uh, and that's, uh, I guess, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I mean, there, I think there's a lot to say about Marx and solidarity. There's a lot of ideas that Marx has that kind of like um, uh, makes glances at what we would know as solidarity. But he says them in different ways because I think the language wasn't quite there for him or something. Mm -hmm. But like mm -hmm. species being, there's a sense of, of solidarity there, but also one that kind of covers over uh, difference, you know, um, the mm -hmm. sense of, of like all being human. But there's also other types of solidarity that you get in the Marx too, just in his conception of like, um, you know, like the ways that workers can uh, come together to, um, I mean, you know, 
basically have a revolution. But like, um, <laughs> but Marx himself never talks about it so much, um, or at least not as explicitly as other people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Rudiger says, I mean, for all you uh, for all you sociology history heads out there, uh, <laughs> Rudiger um, says that it's actually like Durkheim more than Marx who. Right takes takes the time to like sort out what this word means and what it does all that kind of stuff which is pretty interesting um but nevertheless i mean solidarity obviously goes on to become an important uh term in the labor movement uh regardless of where it comes from marx filters it in a way that's pretty interesting even if not uh in a super detailed way um but i think what's really key in this essay and what i think is really fascinating is that um Rudiger is trying to kind of balance out the the good with the bad i guess or the the promise and the peril maybe is a better way of putting it mm. um that there's there's a promise being made when someone says solidarity right the promise that we are in this together whether you're a communist or an anarchist or a unionist or what, whatever it might be um for marxist time anyway uh but at the same time there are the perils when you start to abstract that in real social movements uh, by assuming that by saying the word solidarity, it's a, a sort of magic word, as Rudiger says, that, yeah. you know, does away with all the difference, which I think is a, an important thing to just keep on uh, keep on harping on. OK, thinking through this, Rudiger is a historian. I mean, he's theorizing this, but he also does point us back to history. And I think that uh, we could pull out a few examples. I mean, we've, we've been talking about how solidarity is hard to achieve in maybe a contemporary moment. Um, but Rudiger points us to these uh earlier moments where they, there are these illustrative cases of what he's talking about, um, the challenges of solidarity or the way that uh, solidarity um, doesn't get achieved, all that kind of stuff. The the contradictions in the labor movement, we might say. Right. Um, yeah. So he offers a lot of examples. He talks about like, he has a really interesting reading of the Bacon Rebellion, which if you're into U.S. history, um, Rodiger has a really neat way of uh, talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um one that we kind of thought we'd talk about because uh, it's really fascinating is uh, the support of the labor movement for what was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so we'll talk about that in a minute, but there's a quote that kind of sets this up where Reutiger says, to imagine ourselves in solidarity with social movements of the past challenges us to remember them as presenting both ways forward and ways in which broad solidarities have often been elusive and difficult. So, um, you know, he's saying as a historian, we should learn from the past, uh, but we should learn from it in a sort of critical way. So uh, Rudiger turns to talk about the Knights of Labor, which were a, a like fraternal organization that turned out to be kind of a big deal labor union um, in the 19th century. Uh, they are responsible for all the labor slogans that you still hear today, like an injury to one is an injury for all um, or to all. Uh, they had a lot of interesting things too. They like the Knights of Labor are really wild because not in addition to like doing strikes and stuff, they also had like choirs and like <laughs> like sports halls, uh, just like a really interesting kind of phenomenon. Um, anyway, uh, in spite of all that good stuff that they did do, um, they also did some very bad stuff, including supporting the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was signed in 1882 that excluded uh, Chinese workers um, from the U.S., which they supported on the grounds that, I mean, first of all, racist grounds, but also the grounds that they, like, took away their jobs. Um, yeah. Uh, anything you want to say about that example, Matt? Anything that really strikes you about um, how Rodiger pulls that out? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know. The Knights of Labor were not something I knew a ton about um, other than just some basic information. And I, I think Rodiger helps kind of explain um, exactly like sort of the problem with them. I, I guess I've heard I've heard people talk about Knights of Labor in different contexts and like sort of the history of the labor movement. And like, you know, they seem like important things and an important group. But uh, Rodiger like talks about the Chinese Exclusion Act with regard to the Knights of Labor in a really important way. Uh, he says this. An important part of the labor movement was built not despite a commitment to anti-Chinese racism, but through such a commitment. So I guess what's important about the Knights of the, uh, the Knights of Labor and their support of the Chinese Exclusion Act was that it's not just like uh, an accident that they did that. It's something that they did yeah. because like that was part of building their movement. Um, you know, building worker power at that moment, I guess, meant appealing to white supremacist sentiments. Um, and, uh, that sucks, I guess is what we can say about it. Right. Um, but like going back to that quote from Rodiger a second ago, I I think it kind of fits. Um, that is uh, a moment that we can understand with a lot of criticism, um, like important criticism, like that is obviously bad. Right. Um, 
you can't really say an injury to one is an injury to all if you don't actually mean all. And Rodiger has this interesting thing too that um, links back to like the Knights of Labor more like fraternal vibe at the beginning, which you know if if you say an injury to one is an injury to all in the context of like a fraternal order, it might mean something different than like universal universal yeah. right yeah but uh just the same like i guess this is a good thing to take a look at that like this is the way that labor like built itself in the united states and and like we still see some of these things kind of play out right that there are these like um conservative and reactionary elements to labor um in in certain places that um that will uh prize the labor and the value and the dignity of some workers over others and mm-hmm. um that's not solidarity that's just being a white supremacist. Yeah, or even like uh, the way that people, certain prominent voices in the labor movement or in like left discourse or whatever will play off um, certain demands made by like social movements as being uh, not palatable for like the working class, which is usually the imagination is like the white working class in particular. Um, You know, I'm thinking of a particular incident that I won't go into the details of but not too long ago, a certain podcast <laughs> um, said something about how abolition, like prison abolition is dumb and uh, how like people don't even know what they're talking about when they say it and they sort of won't go out of their way to explain it to anybody. And uh, on this particular podcast, it was a really ridiculous thing to hear because uh, first of all, abolitionists are always explaining stuff all the time. So it's sort of like, this person telling on themselves a little bit about being like they don't do their homework. Um, but also the, uh, the subtext of course is like, this is a a ridiculous kind of demand, um, and one that won't play. But in fact, like, you know, prison abolition is certainly a radical thing to think. Um, but in my experience, uh, especially my experience as a person who talks to other people talking about organizing and all that, it's not like the craziest thing you could ever tell somebody (laughs) like, uh, and there are a lot of people in the working class who are pretty ready to get down with it. Right. So, um, all that to say this kind of, uh, problem of maybe privileging one imagined, uh, block of the working class over and against, uh, other members of the working class, um, and also over and against other people fighting for justice along anti-racist lines, let's say, is something that's unfortunately very alive and well in pretty prominent um, voices on the left. Yeah, totally. That's a good example, I think, um, of how this works out, actually. Um, <laughs> um, well, I understand one that more... you have a historical example as well, Dean. Yeah, that's right. I do. I do have a historical example. Um, so, okay, we talked about, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act was 1882, and you might have thought, all right, well, hopefully, you know, the labor movement got themselves together after that. Uh, sorry to disappoint you. They super did not. Um, and it comes out in a really, really interesting way in the story of George Washington Woodby, who we've mentioned a few times on the show. He was a black pastor, Christian pastor, and uh, also a member of the Socialist Party of America. He was the sole black delegate to its conventions in 1904 and 1908, I think. I should probably double check about that. But in any case, two conventions Um, in 1908 in particular, though, he addressed the problem of anti-Chinese labor in particular at the convention. And he was like one of the few voices to speak out against it. So I'll read a little bit of the speech that he gave, which is fascinating for a lot of reasons. But he says this. I'm in favor of throwing the entire world open to the inhabitants of the world. There are no foreigners and cannot be unless some person comes down from Mars or Jupiter or someplace. So apologies to the Martian uh, labor movement. Uh, I stand on the declaration of Thomas Paine when he said the world is my country. It would be a curious state of affairs for immigrants or descendants of immigrants from Europe themselves to get control of affairs in this country and then say to the Oriental immigrants that they should not come here. That's his term, of course. So far as making this a mere matter of race, I disagree decidedly with the committee that we need any kind of committee to decide this matter from a scientific standpoint. We know what we think upon the question of race now, as well as we would know two years from now or any other time. (laughs) Um, And what I love about this is Woodby is standing up for other workers, of course, uh, but he's also doing it on the grounds that like the labor movement is just pretending that they don't know how to answer this question. 
uh, as we just saw from talking about Reutiger, you know, 30 years before this, people were uh, staunchly um, anti-immigrant and anti-Chinese immigrant in particular. And that was a way of building the labor movement, not uh, assuming that that was just like an unfortunate addendum or something. Um, and I think it's important to pull examples like this out because it shows that people were actually struggling to build solidarity within those conditions, as horrible as they were. Uh, and Woodby is just a fascinating um, person in the history of labor who obviously embodies all of those things at the intersection of race, labor, and thinking about immigration and other forms of racism besides anti-Black racism in the labor movement. Um, so all that to say, uh, the labor movement didn't figure it out, <laughs> but uh, not for a long time anyway, um, and obviously not completely today, but it's great that there are these kind of counterexamples of people like Woodby who are actually trying to make solidarity difficult in important ways. Yeah, Woodby is good. <laughs> Woodby is good be is what I'm going to say right now. That's my <laughs> that's my proclamation. Um, <laughs> well, here's here's another example of of uh, solidarity and ways to to like I guess understand the history critically and to just not paper over these things. Um, Rodiger goes on to give this other kind of interesting example of a sculpture in New York of Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony having tea. <laughs> it's a great sculpture, <laughs> but uh, there's some problems that Rodiger points out. So he writes. The decades of their collaboration, also commemorated by their names, jointly gracing a spectacular bridge near the sculpture, richly deserve remembering. In an interview, the artist cast his own role in producing the work and its subject matter as exemplifying U.S. democracy at its best. All of that granted, the installation implies an ease in solidarity that the lives of Douglas and Anthony both exemplify and contradict. Their long and fruitful collaborations before the before and during the Civil War ought to be recalled, but so too should the fact that in the immediate post-war years, when the questions of African American and women's rights emerged with unprecedented intensity, bitter political splits utterly divided the two leaders. To insist that school children who visit the park would benefit from knowing both stories is not to depreciate the plain heroism and the capacity for alliance Anthony and Douglas often displayed. Nevertheless, profound structural differences in the ways in which the African-American men and middle-class white women experienced both misery and the possibilities of, for redress left them in different and even opposing organizations. To understand the power of those pressures working against solidarity is also a usable part of remembering the past, alerting us to structural differences between forms of domination the present and allowing activists to know that not all fallings out of coalition are the result of bad faith. Okay. That's a really cool, I mean, a cool history, a cool story, a cool complication to put us at unease with solidarity that, uh, okay. Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony kind of known for having these like moments of collaboration. And that's very cool and very good. And we should celebrate that and learn from that whenever we can. But also, like, there were times when they didn't, and they were at odds, and they opposed one another and kind of fell out of favor with one another. And that's also, like, an important part of the story. Like, um, it, it is, like, a, maybe it's more depressing or, like, it's not as cool of a story because it doesn't sort of, like, highlight the way that these two people, like, work together or something. But I think it's important to understand that there, I mean, like, inevitably, there will be times when people who, I mean, both want the same things, right? Like, um, who, who both want, like... Um, dignity and equality and, and that kind of thing. The people that want the same things will en end up being on opposite sides of the conversation. And I think that's mm -hmm. um, that's also good, too, that like um, you don't have to pretend that <laughs> you are in solidarity with other people when you really aren't. Um, because to do so is a disservice to, to the movement that you're in and the movement the other person is in. To, to pretend to have solidarity is bad as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And even that note that Rudiger says that uh, not all fallings out of a coalition are the result of bad faith, I think is really important, right? That you can have a good faith disagreement about how to strategically achieve something that might push you apart, right? Like uh, Anthony and Douglas disagreed over strategies to get suffrage, right? Um, the question being, should you focus on race or gender or both or whatever, and uh, these kinds of issues divided them in ways that just make solidarity really tough. Like if you read the sort of history of that decision for them to part ways, um, you know, you can sort of understand why both of those individuals felt the need to uh, um, 
I don't know, like split on these particular issues and focus on their own fight for a while. Uh, and at the same time, you can see that that split also made solidarity between uh, like the struggle for racial justice and the struggle for gender justice uh, and justice for women in particular, very difficult because uh, if you start playing these two sides off against each other, you reproduce things like sexism or racism uh, within respective movements. And uh, that's what we saw in those movements as well. So I think it's just like it's a really instructive example of uh, how you should see these disagreements as good faith disagreements that nevertheless create real problems. And uh, also you should, um, as he says, avoid the sort of temptation to see this as like U.S. democracy at its best to have mm -hmm. these two individuals uh, enjoying some tea, <laughs> uh, knowing all the while that eventually they're not going to be doing that. Yeah, I think it's good. It's a good lesson to learn. Uh, well, OK, so here's the thing about critical studies. They can bum you out, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Solidarity is a great word. Everybody wants it. Some people want to name a whole political party after it. Uh, we all want solidarity. Um, but Rudiger is trying to say it's a lot easier said than done. And not only that, if you say it too easily, you will not even do it. Uh, it will stop you from doing it. And I don't know, Matt, how do you sort of respond to something like that? Or how does that make you how do you process that as a person on the left? <laughs> it's frustrating. I wish it was just as easy as saying it. That'd be great. <laughs> but uh, I think that makes some sense um, that if it's just an easy thing to say, uh, you know, you don't really have any skin in the game, then, yeah, it would be hard to actually achieve. But if you're just if you're just saying it, but I think it's a good thing to kind of safeguard ourselves against. Right. Like. There are plenty of people in the world who are already like willing to just say that they're in solidarity with this or the other. You know, they're they're willing to say Black Lives Matter or they're willing to take a knee or whatever, and, and they don't mean it. <laughs> it's done in mm -hmm. bad faith. There are too many of those people already. So I think people on the left need to uh, to figure out like how to actually express solidarity in some kind of meaningful way so that it doesn't just fall into sort of like the sea of uh, of bad faith uh corporations saying that they care about black lives or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's right um and not only that but even thinking of the ways that um people on the left uh like we were just saying sort of um privilege imagined constituencies over and against others mm -hmm. in ways that are really pervasive you know the story i mentioned earlier is one example you can see a lot of others i think when like people on the left get really obsessed with I don't know, like not alienating white workers over talking about uh, black issues or something like that. Or uh, people will say things like you're never going to get like a rural white person to like accept this or that demand unless you frame it in a way that, I don't know, makes like appeals to their most reactionary parts of their nature or something. Or, uh, you know, th these kinds of um, things that sometimes feel more like trolling than actually trying to get anything done. Um, or, uh, I think my, one of my biggest like frustrations in the left discourse is, uh, people who will say things like if race, like racism is real, but at the end of the day, all you have to do is think about class and that's it. If you just think about class, you can kind of solve all the problems at once. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what Rodiger does is actually to say that, Hey, if you want to build class solidarity, then you better work hard to build solidarity across like racial lines and many others. Uh, otherwise, you're never going to have class solidarity and you can't do that by pretending that every issue is actually secretly a class issue. Mm -hmm. um, now that I think about it, that is something that Amoria says in the intro to this podcast every single week. So I guess you're familiar with the idea already, <laughs> but uh, it's a very good point and one that people should keep talking about, I think. Yeah, I think so. You know, the, the other thing here, too, this is this is the uh, opposite point that I guess we're trying to make, too is that uh, learning how to disagree is probably a good idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The left is, at this point, extremely coalitional, right? Like, everything everything is like someone's weird group working with someone else's weird group, um, mm -hmm. or one campaign working with another campaign or whatever. Like, the the left is like this, this weird tapestry of things, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And, like, mm -hmm. it is super easy just to, like, you know, flippantly say that we have like, solidarity amongst one another. But, like, uh, I think sometimes there are... I don't know, just like in the example of Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony or whatever differences in strategy. And I think it's a really good idea to learn how to disagree with one another in ways that are like. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, this is another lo another loaded term, but comradely. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like, um, it's really important that solidarity forms, and we want to have the right types of solidarity, and we want to form like the right ways, and not just like say it to say it or whatever. But it's also like under it's it's you don't want to underestimate how important and productive disagreeing can be, and uh, mm-hmm. not being in solidarity with one another. I guess not. Maybe mm-hmm. that's not, maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it. But like having a uh, having a good disagreement that actually like means something rather than just like um trying to throw one another under the bus or whatever yeah yeah no i think that's exactly right um yeah i feel too like it's important to see solidarity as something that you achieve like we said earlier right that and and sometimes the only way to do that also is being willing to like uh be honest about your disagreements such that you can sort of hash them out (laughs) because if you pretend they're not there or you pretend that everybody's actually harmonious um I mean, what a way to destroy any attempt to build any real unity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Rodiger has, a, I think, a really good conclusion here. Um, so he, I'll just read it, and then we can sort of talk it through as we wrap it up. So he says, Warnings against easy optimisms are far from calls for quietism. Instead, they reflect on the extent to which the desire for reassurances that social motion is proceeding in our favor can lead in practice to immobilization, especially when defeats accumulate and hollow victories are extolled. They urge that we realize what we are up against and how uneasy the road ahead is bound to be. We ought to be willing to make solidarity uneasy as well, seeking it by owning its difficulties. Mm. And I think that's just a great way to put it, uh, that you'll only get solidarity if you recognize that it's hard to get. Um, And I think that shouldn't like paralyze you from acting, but on the contrary, it should motivate you to act in such a way that you're, you know, ready to mess up and ready to be told that you're messing up <laughs> and uh, receiving those kinds of um, criticisms or making those kinds of observations all in the interest of actually building solidarity rather than trying to, I don't know, protect your particular vision of how the left ought to be or something like that. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I mean, like the historical aspect of it means that you kind of have to become a little bit disenchanted from some of like the the romance of some of those really cool labor stories <laughs> or like, you know, mm-hmm. like Bacon's Rebellion is like, um, you know, I know we didn't talk about it very much, but like it's one of those stories that's like, and this is exactly why, um, you know, uh, uh, black workers and white workers should work together against like the ruling class or whatever. But, um, but, you know, taking that unease demonstrates the way that um, it's just like way more complicated. And, and um, those stories, uh, uh, they don't always, <laughs> they don't always line up uh, with our, our fantasies of them or our, our mm-hmm. interpretations of them or whatever. But I think that's, it's actually helpful to, to kind of be, I don't know, a, not cynical, but to be uneasy about them because mm-hmm. uh I don't know. I mean, like to to know that other people failed is good because it might let you know that you'll you'll fail too, and that <laughs> that you could be open to it. You could under be open to understanding, but also not uh, maybe not fail in the same way, which would be very positive. To be to fail in a whole new way would be great. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. To not repeat those mistakes, but make uh, better ones is a good thing. Yeah, I think so. I guess like that's a that's a theme that we keep coming up against on Ring of the Past. That's like the theme of 2019, the theme of 2020 for sure, <laughs> is failing in, in new ways that might be better. Um, yeah. But I think that's true of, I mean, of solidarity, right? Like, um, you might you might end up doing the opposite of solidarity if you don't quite get it right. And, I mean, that's bad, <laughs> obviously. You don't want that to happen. <laughs> but um, being, like, open to that criticism, I think, is really important. And understanding that, like, um, I don't know, it's not like you're gonna get it just right anyways and like <laughs> and win everything all at <laughs> once so uh being open to to failing is like i guess i think uh something the left kind of needs yeah i mean we we also we didn't spend too much time on the christian angle this time around but i think there's so we've criticized there are bad christian ways to understand solidarity but you know i think there's also there's a great line where herbert mccabe says in the class struggle and christian love that uh being a christian should make you a good comrade and i think you know 
for those of us that are still in the Christian tradition like me and trying my best to figure out how to be a good Christian and make that work for me and make myself work for it or whatever, um, that kind of line helps me to reflect on things like, all right, what is it about being a Christian that I hope could actually make me feel okay with the, the uneasiness of solidarity? And I think that that's where you can find maybe some spiritual tools to help you out, right? To uh, allow yourself to um, be humble in the face of that kind of criticism, allow yourself to be for the other person and your neighbor as a person who you you trust and, you know, want to lift up. And um, like, as the Bible says, and so far as it depends on you, don't be in conflict with anybody uh, within the labor movement. That's the that's the asterisk that Paul forgot to uh, to add on in that verse. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, it's important to sort of think through how not only does Christianity kind of mess this up, but it can be a, I hope anyway, um, some kind of repository of, of tools and strategies that make you a better comrade able to deal with the, the uneasiness of solidarity. There we go. Nailed it. Got that good Christian stuff right at the end. Yeah, th that's how you do it. You got to get it in right at the end, right, <laughs> right at the the end of the wire, the end of the line, uh, right before all the kids are about to lose focus. You hit them with that altar call and uh, find out who's still awake. We're all gonna be at the altar, crying our eyes out. It's uh, it's so important. <laughs> it's Thursday night at camp, and uh, we're we're doing it. That's a church camp reference, and only if you've been to church camp will you know what Thursday night camp is like. <laughs> we veered into very dangerous territory so i think we have to stop it there right. um but uh yeah uh build solidarity and also um know that you're gonna mess it up that's right thanks for listening to the magnificast this is the part of the episode that's like the end of saturday night live and everyone's at the at, on stage <laughs> we're all waving uh i got that saxophone <laughs> that's right jason sudeikis is here he was on the show wasn't he great <laughs> uh keenan's giving everyone a hug it's so good and if uh, you... can you believe larry david's out there in the in the audience i didn't even see him in the beginning <laughs> he's just hiding out there the whole time <laughs> well if you liked this uh this episode and these sad night live references then you can support <laughs> us on patreon at patreon.com slash the cast uh you can also leave us an itunes review which should be great we don't get a lot of them these days they're slowing down um after a few years of doing this podcast people are giving us less and you know what? <laughs> fine but you could do it anyways it'd be really cool um great give us two yeah that's right um our intro music is by amari armstrong and our outro music is by the illogical spoon and we'll see you next time get up at church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no dam between us and our lord Jackson, keep your hoods up, and keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So